0: Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this
0: is Joe McCormick. And today's movie on Weird House is the 1976 Greek or Greek-ish horror film, The Devil's Men, also known as Land of the Minotaur. And I'm going to say right at the top, this is definitely not one of the best or most riveting films we have watched for Weird House Cinema. Though I think it will still make for a fun episode. I almost feel like we were kind of tricked into it because there are a <laughs> lot of names here that really want to invite you into the labyrinth. It stars Donald Pleasence and Peter Cushing. It's also got uh, Luan Peters and a score by
1: Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. I think that was the kicker. That was the what really drew us in. We're like, oh, oh, Brian Eno scored this film. Well, of course, we want to take a closer look. Uh, as we'll discuss, it's I mean, this is ex- exceedingly noteworthy. Um, and ultimately, I think this is the factor that makes this such a, an interesting hidden gem. There are a few other production notes that I think make it stand out. Uh, again, you mentioned it is a, a Greek or a Greek-ish horror film. It was a Greek-American co-production, essentially, and we'll get into some of those details. Uh, but yeah, it has two big stars. It has um, this fabulous score, and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily have a lot else to, to recommend it, uh, but it's still going to be fun to talk about.
0: The score is really good. I feel like it is deserving of a much better movie. It's it's a modest score. Like, there's not a whole lot of it in the film. There are like, eh, I think maybe like two or three main musical motifs that are used multiple times throughout the movie, but they're good. And they're uh, deserving of a uh, more thoughtful set of images to accompany the
1: sounds. Yeah, my only critique on the score is that I wish there was more of it because there are plenty of scenes where there's no <laughs> Brian Eno. Yeah. And then also, I wish it was louder because it is, it's so subtle that it also actually, at least in my viewing, and who knows, you know, stereo settings and so forth, I felt like the score wasn't loud enough. The score yeah. could have been a little louder.
0: I agree. Uh, and that a, a lot of the scenes with music were just using the same music over and over. But mm-hmm. did you notice the script had a similar quality? There's a very copy paste quality to land of the minotaur where characters would have whole scenes where they were only saying lines that they had already said in earlier scenes
1: yeah this is not a film where anybody gets any good lines nobody (laughs) whether you're the star top build uh, donald pleasance whether you're uh the the evil cult leader peter cushing even if you're one of the uh, the various other uh, smaller uh, players in the picture, you don't really get any cool lines. Nobody has anything really cool to say in this movie. Most people don't really have anything cool to do in this movie. <laughs> Rob,
0: I- I'm going to have to disagree with you about uh, the lines because you were forgetting the part where the character Milo says, where the devil did the whole village get to? And Donald <laughs> Pleasants answers him, you've answered your own question to the devil.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we should we should hit on an important fact concerning this movie at this point is that it is essentially a satanic cult movie of the 1970s, except instead of it being outright Satan, there's like some slapdash Minotaur cult stuff added in instead. But they don't even really commit to that. Like they don't even go all in on. On some sort of like ancient um, uh, religion or mythology of Crete or some sort of imagined Minotaur religion. Like at one point, Donald Pleasence is like, ah, it's Satan Minotaur. It's all the same. It's all, it's the, all same. the
0: same stuff, same thing. <laughs> he, is, there's a whole speech about it. It's like the force with a thousand faces and no face at all. It's, it's been around since before humankind. Some have called it Mephistopheles, the devil, the Minotaur. It's all the same.
1: Uh, yeah, so just one of the many ways in which this film, you know, is 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 competent and has a lot of talented people in it, and people doing a very professional job, but it doesn't go for it uh, in in any of the ways that you might expect uh, one of these other films to do, both in a positive way in a negative way. Like it doesn't even really go for any of the really exploitive stuff you might expect. I mean, the worst we get is like maybe a little bit of blood and then it looks pretty good. We get some, um, you know, some basic 70s sexism. Uh, but that's about it. It's not really an ex- exploitation film at all. Uh, no, there are scenes
0: where characters just stand around and take phone calls naked for no reason.
1: Yes. Yeah. And they're, and they are very naked in those scenes. Um, yeah, and I guess you, they can, the actors involved can be commended for that, but uh, but that's about the extent. Now, I think as
0: is often the case with lackluster films, uh, a lot of the blame here uh, goes to the script. It's just like not the most engaging story of all time. But in on the on the other side, like what is working pretty well here, it does have a pretty good cast, though most of mm-hmm. them are not giving. I think the best performances of their careers. It does have that nice Brian Eno score and we'll talk more about that as we go on. It also has some really good locations, like a lot of the outdoor mm-hmm. shots and and the stuff in the caves and all that. I'm like, "Oh, wow. Okay, so like they, you know, they got permits I guess to shoot in some uh, very
1: pleasant and interesting looking uh, scenery." Yes, solid cave locations, some very gorgeous scenes of the Greek countryside. And also, uh, I thought they have a, a pretty nice, like, cult layer set that they built so some sort of, like, you know, sort of gothic dungeon cult kind of a set that, uh, that looks pretty good.
0: Now, may we compare and contrast with the other cult of human sacrifice movies that we've featured on the show? Uh, and I guess in order to do that, we need to remember what all of those are. There is, of course, "The Devil Rides Out" from 1968. That is the one that uh, is based on the novel by
1: Dennis Wheatley. Is that his name? Correct. Yeah. And I think one of the things about "The Devil Rides Out," because it's based on that Wheatley novel, is that it aspires to a sort of, and we discussed this in that in our Weird House on this. It aspires to a sort of um, almost documentary feel, like Wheatley and or this movie is trying to warn you about the real threat of the occult. And this movie is just making it all up. I mean they're both
0: Yes, but (laughs) But in The Devil Rides Out, there I don't know, there are more interesting dynamics about uh good and evil and all that. In in this one it's just kind of like the moral of the story is that, well, there is a devil and the devil's real and and you gotta defeat him.
1: Oh yeah, there are all sorts of interesting rules that are Employed um, in *The Devil Rides Out*, like magic has has rules and laws to it, yeah. and there are all these different examples that were that Wheatley clearly took out of uh, like old witchcraft grimoires and so forth. And again, you just don't have that in this movie.
0: Oh, there's another interesting thing in *The Devil Rides Out* about how. Some people have the power, have the fortitude to explore the occult without being seduced and destroyed by it. And others don't. If they start learning about the occult, it's just going to suck them in and they will be overpowered. Like Christopher Lee, he can read all the occult tomes,
1: but Simon, you'd better not read them. (laughs) Yes. Well, there is one classification of human that is safe in this movie. As we find out, it is, of course, the children.
0: So the children here can read the occult tomes unharmed. But if you're Peter Cushing and you read them, you will not only end up leading a minotaur cult, you will literally explode at the end of the film. Yes. Uh, that brings me to the second point of comparison. Another movie we've talked about on Weird House is The Devil's Reign from 1975, which is only one year before this movie came out. I can't help but notice that comparison and the, sim- the similarity with the titles. Uh, so this is The Devil's Men, also known as Land of the Minotaur. I don't remember which title was for what uh, region, but somewhere it was called The Devil's Men. That was The Devil's Reign. Both are about a cult doing human sacrifice in a rocky, arid landscape. And uh, so I wonder if The Devil's Men was trying to use a similar title and a somewhat similar ending to kind of steal some of that melt juice from the Ernest Borgnine hit.
1: Uh, probably so, yeah, because uh, cause The Devil's Men is the U.S. release title, which came after the, the Minotaur or Minotaur um, <laughs> um, a release in the U.K.,
0: Is that it? I thought it was the other way around. I thought it was The Devil's Men in the U.K.
1: and Land of the Minotaur in the U.S. Hmm. You could be right. Now now you have me flipped. I'm lost in the labyrinth now. It's one of the two. (laughs) Now, those are the two
0: main satanic cult movies we've covered that I can think of. Others, uh, oh, well, Treasurer of the Four Crowns had a cult. I don't know if that yeah. was satanic. It was instead based around that guy. What was his name? Like, like uh,
1: Johnny, the cult leader. He had a name. I, yeah, I don't even remember the name of that guy. I can picture him, though. Um, this is an interesting dynamic to point out because I think The Devil Rides Out and The Devil's Reign are both a lot more entertaining uh, compared to The Devil's Men. Yeah. Um, and I think those are ultimately perhaps better movies, Um, you know, this is all subjective. I would say Treasure of the Four Crowns is definitely a worse movie than The Devil's Men, Uh, but it is more fun to watch because it is so stupid. And The Devil's Men, it's like on one one hand, it's not, you know, it kind of falls into that sort of lukewarm category in some ways because it's not... It's not bad enough or stupid enough, or it doesn't have wonky enough performances to really make it fall into that, uh, you know, cheesy movie territory. But it doesn't, again, just doesn't really go for it in so many other areas.
0: It doesn't have the wall-to-wall madcap 3D effects of Treasure of the Four Crowns. Oh, yeah. Imagine if this had 3D. Would have worked in a few scenes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if I can know which ones you're thinking of. 3D uh, nostrils blasting fire in your face. Oh, yeah. Now, beyond that, uh, did the Blind Dead movie we did have a cult? I don't remember if that had a blood cult or not.
1: Um, well, the, the Templars are depicted as a blood cult in that. And, of course, the whole setup is they were a blood cult, then they're all dead. And then, like, the, the lone um, uh, troublesome occultist in town helps them return from the dead. We, we talked about Return of the Blind Dead, so I can't really speak to uh, Tomb of the Blind Dead, the first one, because I haven't seen it forever. But, um, yeah, similar stuff going on. But I think even more key is that while this movie is filmed in Greece, it still has a similar feel compared to the Blind Dead movies. You know, that dry, dusty walls and ruins used as a backdrop for some sort of an occult story.
0: Now, there's one thing I think some of the better satanic cult movies do that most of the movies we've talked about don't really do. Uh, I guess The Devil Rides Out sort of did is show the advantages one gets from worshiping the devil so that's you know classically mm-hmm. there in like rosemary's baby it's like you know you make a pact with the devil oh hey suddenly i'm financially doing better and i'm getting a part in this play and all that you know the devil is in exchange for your worship and the evil deeds you do in his service he sort of does favors for you he does some magic to, to help you along with to, to attain your goals A lot of these movies don't even have that, so you're kind of left wondering, like, what's in it for the cultists? Why are they worshipping a
1: minotaur or a devil? I don't even see that they're getting
0: anything out of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes it's in the performance. Like, uh, you know, Borgnine looks like he's having a good time. Uh, That's true. And, of course, in that one, to be fair, there is the whole plot line that's established that they have been alive for over 100 years because or maybe centuries i don't recall but they have vastly extended their lives because mm. of their pact with the devil um in this i guess we sort of assume wealth has something to do with it but otherwise we don't see any real results
0: i don't know a lot of these cultists don't seem all that wealthy like peter cushings character is wealthy but most of them are like oh the town uh, the innkeeper and the guy who works in the grocery store they're in the cult what are they, are, are they doing all that hot I guess it's a pyramid scheme, you know, (laughs) that's that's all it is. Gotten the the cult too late. They're trying to get some more recruits into their (laughs) downline. Can you imagine the pyramid scheme pitch, but it's in the Minotaur voice from the movie, like the statues talking saying, bring me three to five of your Facebook friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can very, very well imagine that. Um, In the accompanying booklet for the Blu-ray that we'll mention here in a minute, uh, Andrew Graves mentions some other influences. He mentions The Devil Rides Out. He mentions The Devils. Also mentions The Wicker Man from 73 which I thought is another great comparison because The Wicker mm-hmm. Man of course is like like the um English folk horror film, you know, par excellence, you know, it's the the one that you think of when you think of like the lineage of of British folk horror. And this movie kind of aspires to a kind of Greek folk horror, but again doesn't really go for it. You know, it doesn't really give us something that we can latch on to here.
0: Well, yeah, again, because it has so little interaction with any actual Greek mythology or any of the the particulars or the feel of of the Minotaur itself, uh, as we said, it's just sort of like, oh, the Minotaur, that's just another kind of devil. That's, you know, there's a devil and one of his forms is it's a
1: bullhead horns mm-hmm. and the, like, there's not much else to it. Yeah. So, a lot of missed opportunities here with this film, but there's, there's still some fun stuff to talk about here. My elevator pitch, I don't, I don't have a great one here, but I just went with Ambient 666, music for satanic minotaur cults. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, music for blood gutters. Yeah.
1: The actual tagline, or one of the taglines for the film, I thought was in, extremely de- uh, de- deceptive. Half man, half beast, trapped in a world forgotten by time. Huh? Sounds great. Not this movie, but it sounds great. I feel like it would be equally appropriate
0: if that were the tagline for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right. Let's go ahead and listen to the trailer audio. It is a pretty fun trailer. Um, I don't actually recommend watching the trailer if you intend to see the film in full because it does that thing where they, they they take whatever action they can find in this movie, and they cobble all of it together into this trailer. Like, you see stuff from the finale uh, in there as well. Uh, But still, it's a fun one, so let's have a listen.
3: Come with us, if you dare, on a terrifying journey through cells of madness, haunts of horror and fear. Come with us to this forsaken monument of crumbling stones which echoes the desolate cries of the damned. Descend with us to the forbidden chambers of the ancient pagan gods of wrath where the devil's men perform the secret rites of the land of the Minotaur. Those who enter the forbidden chamber of the Minotaur must die. 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 The Land of the Minotaur. Donald Pleasence, as the man of God, who defies the dark and sinister powers that curse this land and all who venture into it. The devil has many faces. And many help us too. Come on, let's get out of here. Peter Cushing as the Red Prince of Evil, who lures young lovers into the deadly embrace of the devil's men. The old customs remain, and the ancient gods live on. The old customs remain, and the ancient gods live on. Stop them. No earthly power can stop them. The Land of the Minotaur. The most terrifying film of 1977. Coming to this theater soon.
1: Don't miss it. All right. I want to take issue with this trailer's claim that this is. quote, the most terrifying film of 1977. Um, (laughs) Note that it was released in the UK and Greece in 76 and then in the US in 77. Um, Because if this statement were true at all, it would mean that The Devil's Men is more terrifying than such films as um, Alucarda, Blue Sunshine, The Deep, Demon Seed, Eraserhead, House, The Incredible Melting Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, Cronenberg's Rabid, Rituals, Rolling Thunder, The Sentinel, Mario Baba's Shock, Shockwaves, Sorcerer, and Suspiria. Wow. So granted, it's, you know, pure marketing. Everything's fair in marketing. If no one else is going to say you have the most terrifying film of 77, you might as well say it. But uh, I don't think a strong case can be made for the devil's men over these films.
0: Now, when it comes to ways of watching The Devil's Men or Land of, Land of the Minotaur, this is actually a movie I became aware of a while back. It might have been when we did our core episodes on the Minotaur myth. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. It was sometime in the past few years I found out about this, and the the streaming version I found of it online at the time I wanted to watch, but the quality was, like, so bad it looked un unwatchable. Uh, but there's actually a, a very nice uh, Blu-ray or DVD, whichever it is that we, we watched of it. I guess it was a Blu-ray, uh, and it looked really good.
1: Yeah, this is a terrific Blu-ray release from Indicator. I don't think they they put out a lot of copies of this. It's one of these like limited to however many thousand in the U.S. Uh, but it you know reasonably priced includes a new two K restoration from the original negative, two different cuts of the film, uh, lots of other extras. So you know whatever faults you might have with the movie itself, like this is a this is a great presentation of it and has some great background. There's some commentary tracks. Uh, so I highly recommend it if you if you are inclined to view the movie. We're gonna pass our copy of it onto Videodrome here in Atlanta after we're done with it. So you might be able to rent it from them if you happen to be local. All right, let's get into the people involved in this movie. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and apologize at the top here. We're we're dealing with some Greek names here, and uh, it's it's entirely possible, if not likely, uh, that uh, I'm going to mispronounce something. The director is Kostas Karagianis, uh, who lived 1932 through 1993. A very established Greek director of various genres, but this was his first and only horror film. Uh, he, he'd done some thrillers, it looks like, but I, in some of the commentary I've read, they, they, a lot of people touch on this that this is the only time he dipped his toes in horror, and perhaps it shows in his, you know, unwillingness or I don't know, just inability. In, in I don't know how you want to you know look at it, but the fact that it doesn't really go after those horror moments uh, the way that other horror films would have. Uh, so you know, while he because while he draws on a lot on various satanic cult horror films, the horror, the the terror, the suspense elements in this film often feel a little bit blunted. We get some great ambiance in places, and certainly with the aid of Eno's score, we get a strong dreamlike flavor to various scenes. But I feel like these scenes are often lacking, again, in that special something to push them over the top and make them actually memorable.
0: Yeah, I agree. I th- I mean, <laughs> for one thing, I think. We have something of a problem that, like the the main monster in this film, is actually just a statue, and it's not that scary looking of a statue. It's sort of more on the funny looking side, mm. and th- so that's the main monster. And then we've got some cult members who wear, you know, anytime you put somebody in creepy cult robes with hoods, that that looks creepy. Uh, but they're they're still not really used much. I mean, there are like some scenes where they. They, like, peek in a window to scare somebody, but then they, like, pull their head back out of the window when the person sees them, and it just looks funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, because there are shots where the cult members are scary, and you see those eyes behind the mask and all, but, yeah, other times, not so much. Um, Sometimes they're bulletproof, and that's never explained either. Uh, Donald
0: Pleasance makes reference to that almost as if it's, like, a known thing about cult members. He's (laughs) like, they can't be destroyed by... At at one point, I, I think he says... The force of an automobile is not enough to destroy them because they hit a cult member with the car, but he's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess that's the, this is the benefit. This is the fringe benefit for worshipping the Minotaur. Now, uh, is here. His other big films for the Greek market included 1973's Tango of Perversion, 1974's Death Kiss, and 1977's Dangerous Cargo. Again, this was a partially a Greek production, but you had outside money coming in. Uh, interestingly enough, I think some Getty money um, was involved in funding this particular picture. Huh? They were involved in uh, yeah, film production for a while there. Huh. All right. The writer here is Arthur Rowe, who lived 1923 through 1998, an American writer with TV writing credits going back into the early 1950s. Eventually, including episodes of such shows as Cold Jack *The Night Stalker*, *The Bionic Woman*, and *Fantasy Island*. Those last two, uh, he was also a producer on those. He wrote three other screenplays that made it to the to made it to to film. Those include 1971's *Zeppelin*, 1972's *The Magnificent Seven Ride*. Yeah. I assume that it's a sequel. Uh, it sounds like it's a, an actual ride, though. But it you know, like if you would. <laughs> the ride at Universal Studios yeah yeah but it's uh, it's a movie I don't know anything about it also a 1976 uh, Kolchak TV movie Demon and the Mummy
0: w- was there supernatural stuff in Kolchak?
1: <laughs> yeah yeah oh okay I didn't know that yeah yeah that, that was a fun show back 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 in the day I, I mean I didn't watch it back in the day but I watched it at some point like on Sci-fi channel in the 90s
0: Oh okay I, I've never seen it I assumed it was a
1: earthy uh, realistic cop thriller. Yeah, what, uh, Darren McGavin, I believe, played the uh, the lead in that. All right, let's get down into the, the cast of this film, though. Top billing goes to Donald Pleasance, who plays Father Roche in this. Uh, lived 1919 through 1995. Uh, this this is our first Donald Pleasance film. Uh, famous British actor of stage, screen, and TV. Um, he was reportedly offered the villain role for this picture, but said, nope, he would only do it if he got to play the hero, as he was a bit... Uh, Burnout. I'm playing the villains at the time because, of course, he's a member of the Bond villain club, having played the Bond villain, Blowfield, in 1967's You Only Live Twice. It's Blowfeld, Rob. I know you're not
0: a Bond fan, but uh, <laughs> it's Blowfeld.
1: He, he Blofeld? played yeah, so it, not Blowfield? Blowfeld. Ah, Blowfield sounds like more of an actual name. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Blowfeld is like so Springfield. The, the, exactly. Uh, he has a secret volcano lair and You Only Live Twice. And You Only Live Twice is the one where Blofeld uh, feeds his victims to piranhas. So he has like a bridge leading to his office. And when you're walking over the bridge, if he's unhappy with you, he presses a button. The bridge collapses and you fall into the piranha pit.
1: Mm. I remember enjoying this one as a child, watching it on uh, Turner channels and stuff. I think there's what, a airplane that folds into a suitcase. Yes. There are ninjas. And then there's a lot of um, a lot of racial stuff that probably hasn't aged well.
0: Yeah, there is a really unfortunate whole sequence where they attempt to turn James Bond Japanese. Inc- yeah, it's uh, it, it's weird, but the the villain stuff in it is pretty good.
1: Now, I think you can see the impact of that role on subsequent um, Donald Pleasance villain roles, you know, that sort of detached, gray eyed mastermind sort of performance, which, again, Pleasance is a solid professional. So it's solid stuff, even in some really uh, lackluster films. Um, But the thing about Pleasance is he did a lot more than just those villain roles. Uh, we, We see in this film a kind of hint of what was to come with his Dr. Loomis performance in the Halloween franchise. He had a memorable role in The Great Escape from 1963, which was itself quite fitting because Donald Pleasant served in the RAF during World War II, uh, was captured and imprisoned in a German prisoner of war camp.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So uh, he has a pretty interesting filmography. But just considering horror and sci-fi, his credits include a 1956 TV adaptation of 1984, 1960's The Flesh and the Fiends with Peter Cushing, Circus of Horrors and the Hands of Orlock in 1960, 1966's Fantastic Voyage, THX 1138 in 1971, Tales that Witnessed Madness in 73, From Beyond the Grave and Mutations in 74, an adaptation of Dracula in 79, The Puma Man in 1980. Puma Man. <laughs> Puma Man is a great example of him being asked to do the Bond villain thing in a movie that is clearly not the best.
0: I'm trying to remember whether the villain role I'm thinking of him in is the one from Puma Man or the one from
1: Warrior of the Lost World. That's right, because that's another one where he does the same thing, is asked to do the same thing. That's 83- Sandwich in between these two, you've got Escape from New York in 81. That's a rather different role for him.
0: He plays the president of the United States of America.
1: <laughs> I I remember reading um, about him talking about that role where he's like, yeah, Carpenter asked me to play this role. And so I had to work out why a British person would become... Uh, president of the United States, and it had all this background material, and then she, he, like, asked if Carpenter wanted to read it, and Carpenter's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> so, but I like that commitment, the professionalism, you know? Yeah, the part when he's getting into the egg-shaped
0: escape pod from Air Force One, and he says, like, may God be with you all.
1: <laughs> it's a, it, I mean, it's a pretty good performance in Escape from New York, you know, He, especially later on in the film where he's... Um, He's a little, it's it's more of a raw performance, you know? Yeah. Um, Other films, let's see, 82's Alone in the Dark. uh, Phenomena in 1985, this is the Dario Argento film, right? That's
0: right, with him and uh, and Jennifer Connelly, and one of the craziest giallo plots of all time. (laughs) Let's
1: see, To Kill a Stranger in 86, Warrior Queen in 87, Specters and Prince of Darkness in 87, and in 1988, He's in that Nosferatu in Venice movie. This is the one where Klaus Kinski was asked to reprise his role as Nosferatu, asked to shave his head and report to set. And he was like, I'm not shaving my head this time. And (laughs) uh, obviously, there were a lot of problems with that movie. But not Pleasance. You can count on Pleasance. He's a rock.
0: You know, if we ever wanted to do a a John Carpenter movie, I feel like we could do Prince of Darkness.
1: Yeah, I... uh... I think that one would be a good selection. Uh, yeah, let's let's put a pin in that one and consider coming back to it. Great cast, weird film. Yeah. Now, uh, real quick, a few other things on Ple- Pleasant. I uh, I'm not going to touch on everything he was in because again, all sorts of different genres. Uh, but I will say he has a very fun and very spirited role as a blue collar police inspector in 1972's Death Line. That that's uh, one of those terrific performances that completely elevates a film. And and also is very much against type, at least for what many of us might expect of Donald Pleasance. If you're a Pleasance fan, check that one out. It's a lot of fun. I've also heard great things about his performance in the 1971 Australian new wave thriller Wake and Fright from 71. Uh, a lot of people hold that up as kind of a, an excellent buried gem.
0: Oh, never heard of it yeah another thing i don't did you mention that he appears not only in the first halloween movie but in many halloween sequels including sequels after he was killed in the previous film
1: oh no no i'm i'm not as familiar with the the various halloween sequels past two i think
0: okay so you remember at the end of halloween two he's definitely dead right just
1: explodes huge ball Mm -hmm. of fire he's dead yeah
0: part three no Donald
1: Pleasant's, totally different oh, yeah. story. We know. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of forget that it's part of the Halloween franchise because it's, yeah, obviously I'm familiar with 3.
0: Right. 4, he's just back. He's back. Um, <laughs> just some, I think some scars on his face. Uh, and then I don't remember what happens to him at the end of 4, but he's back again in 5. Oh, wow.
1: Also, just real quick, I'll note that he also did a lot of TV. He was on the original Twilight Zone, the original Outer Limits, and then much later at the Ray Bradbury Theater. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I believe four of his daughters went into acting as well, with the most notable being Angela Pleasance, who did quite well for herself on stage, screen, and TV. She's been in a load of things. One
0: last thing you didn't mention. Donald Pleasance was the spirit of dark and lonely water.
1: Yes, of course. <laughs> this was a um, uh, like a public service uh, TV bit, right, that uh, was warning children to stay away from... Uh, from uh, the dark and lonely waters stay away from those green pools uh, lest a uh, dark fate fall upon you
0: I think we talked about this in our episodes on Ginny Green teeth but mm-hmm. yes yeah stuff to uh, blow your mind episode mm-hmm. yeah narrated by Donald
1: Pleasance all right. Um, Again, Peter Cushing is in this, playing Baron Corifax. Um, We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Cushing here in this part because we've covered Cushing before. He lived 1913 through 1994. Uh, kind of a weird weird house cinema standard at this point. I think the first time we discussed him was in our episode on Shockwaves, um, which came out the same year as this. Um You know, this is, what can you say? This is Hammer's Dr. Frankenstein. This is Star Wars' Grand Moff Tarkin. So he's always solid, whether he's playing a villain or a hero. Um, Though this is, as Graves points out in the the material on the Blu-ray, later day Cushing, uh, during which he's generally more memorable in smaller, more intense roles rather than bigger villain roles or, you know, more pronounced roles like this. I want to say he seemed
0: especially angular in this film. Like, Cushing always has a striking face with very sharp features. But in this movie, it's just ridiculous. His head, I was trying to think what it reminded me of, and I realized he looks like a boss from the original Star Fox video game. where it's just it, polygons, the angles, the corners. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, I can see the comparison. It was a very stark face. I mean, when he was a much younger man, he still had a very stark face. And here he's, you know, he's leaner, he's older. You know, I think at this point he'd been through some, you know, some intense personal loss. His his wife of of many years had died uh, earlier in the 70s. And I think that kind of cast a shadow on him personally for, uh, for a good decade there, mm. if not the rest of his life. But again, consummate professional. Very talented, even in a role like this that isn't really asking him to go beyond <laughs> any anywhere. You know, even even though he doesn't really do anything all that memorable, it's still nice when he's on screen. All right. Who's, who else is in this thing? OK, we have um, Luann Peters playing Laurie. Uh, Ann Peters lived 1946 through 2017, also sometimes known as Carol Keyes, beautiful blonde English actress and singer. She started out on TV in the late 60s but eventually became a Hammer horror star after appearing in 1971's Lust for a Vampire and Twins of Evil, which had Peter Cushing in it.
0: Peter Cushing plays a kind of uh uh witchfinder inquisitor sort of character in that. Hmm. He's a very the mother- very stern uh, church-like uncle of the twins of the titular Twins of Evil.
1: Ah are the twins themselves evil or are they just of evil
0: uh, Only one of them is evil. One becomes the sort of vampire bride of Count uh, Karnstein. Is that what he is? He, he, he's the guy in the movie. So there's like an evil count in the movie who is a Satan worshiper. He has dinner parties where he like lifts his goblet and says, to Satan. and <laughs> uh, He seduces one of the two twins and that and she becomes evil. But the other one is good.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Her other uh, Luann Peters other horror credits include The Flesh and Blood show from 72 Vampira from 1974. But I have to stress not the seemingly lost German TV movie Vampira directed by George Morse starring Grisha Huber and with an early score by Tangerine Dream. I'd love to get my hands on this. If if you have a copy of this email us. but no Peters was in the uh, Vampira movie that is also known as Old Dracula. I don't know that one. Uh it's not supposed to be very good. <laughs> her TV credits include two episodes of Doctor Who and a memorable gag on Faulty Towers. Uh I included a screenshot from this uh for you here uh, Joe as well as one of her uh album covers. So yeah, she was quite a fairly successful back in the day. Love Countdown is the Lou
0: Peters album.
1: Yeah. She's wearing like gold pants. Gold pants, uh yellow
0: top, blonde hair, sort of gold background with gold lettering.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right we also have a character named milo that's going to be important played by costas Kara Georgis, who lived 1938 through 1989 uh so his character in this is an american playboy who spends the first couple of scenes naked in new york uh, not, not on the streets like in in a, like a penthouse apartment um yeah. but but the actor is a greek leading man
0: he looks like he's in a in a room at the playboy mansion but in all of his scenes in his room there is like church organ music playing in the background did
1: you notice that (laughs) i didn't notice that
0: what's going on
1: yeah so this may be his best known international film but his other works include 1962's sky 1973's love on a horse and 1977's dangerous cargo which we referenced earlier He's kind of a young, prematurely gray or white-haired fella. Um, and I think he's ultimately, he's good in this. Uh, I, I, but again, it's, it, this is a hard film to gauge anyone's talent on. Yeah, he, I don't think the actor is bad. I think it's a very poorly
0: written part. His character is very flat. Like, he just has basically one type of line, which is, I'm a detective, I need facts, stop with
1: your daydreaming. <laughs> Yeah, he's like a private detective that I this film, I'm really floored by what the actual connections between any given character is to another. Like, yes, we have this basic idea that Donald Pleasance, this kind of Catholic priest, has like this this longstanding relationship with these these young folk that have gone out all over the world. But I don't know what that was like. He was he a teacher um did he raise them? I don't I just don't know. They don't make it seem
0: like that. So yeah, but it's very perplexing. He he's Father Roche. Father Roche, sorry, Father Roche is an Irish priest living in Greece who constantly has American archaeology students coming to live at his house while they <laughs> do archaeology.
1: Yeah, and his main defining characteristics are you know likes the young people he's hip with the young people loves god of course hates minotaur cults
0: hates the devil he's really not into the (laughs) devil but yeah also like you said it would be one thing if he was like oh yeah i run a hostel for traveling students or something but it's not like that it's like he knows all of these students from long before he's like oh i remember you when you were just a child so where does he where does he know him from was
1: there another movie we were supposed to have watched or something? I don't know. You know, I think they're trying to
0: set up a, a sequel to this movie
1: at the very end. They did end. do that at the end, yeah. Where they're yeah. like, well, the evil is defeated for today. <laughs> but,
0: he turns to Milo and he's like, I
1: may need your help in films yet to come. Yeah. <laughs> if the Getty money continues to pour in, we may have another adventure. But also, so the
0: those are our three main characters. When we've got uh, Father, Father Roche milo and Lori, that they're they're the three main casts starting at like a third of the way in but mm-hmm. also this movie has too many characters
1: yeah there are a whole bunch of other characters who really don't do much other than like behave um uh, in a sexist manner and then get kidnapped by minotaur cults so we have bob belling playing tom uh belling lived i believe 1944 through 1977 these dates are not listed on the major databases but i poking around. I think they're correct, but they could be incorrect. Uh, American actor and model who worked extensively in Greece for a while, appearing in at least five films. But I'm to understand he also did some modeling work. Uh, Three of his films were all released in 76. This, a kind of Greek film called The Hook, and a notorious video nasty titled Island of Death about a pair of British newlyweds who seem like they're just on a honeymoon, enjoying life, but then they go on a religious, murderous rampage through rural Greece. It's kind of universally reviled and was seemingly his final film before his possible untimely death. Again, uh, I'm not 100% sure on these dates, but that seems to be the story.
0: I noticed in this movie, uh, when I was first watching it, I I saw an actor, I was like, wait a minute, Brad Dourif's in this? Uh, it wasn't brad Dourif, but at certain angles this actor looks a lot like brad Dourif, except more with a kind of football player physique
1: yeah i think he has a great look you know like clearly he's um he's a, like a cut leading man type with this kind of like rugged 70s hair and face um, again he doesn't really get to do much in this and once he's kidnapped by the minotaur cult like that's it yeah. you're tied up for the remainder of scenes i guess you wouldn't think that Brad
0: Dourif could so easily with a few tweaks go into like total hunk mode but yeah <laughs> it's, it's pretty close already sorry we just got sidetracked with a significant off mic conversation about which guy was which uh, if whether which Tom was which character and Ian was which character uh, but I think all the stuff you just said we are talking about the same guy
1: yeah there are the secondary um, young people are easily confused in this film all right. We also have an actor named uh, Jane Lyle, who plays Milo's girlfriend. Dates unknown. Uh, British model, I think. Uh, she, was the, she plays the wife in Island of the Dead, opposite Belling. Um, these are her only film credits, though there is also sometimes a third credit, 1978's Erotic Nightmare. Um, is she a great actor? Probably not. But to be mm-hmm. fair, she's given very little to do in this film other than be naked in that penthouse in New York. One last person of note uh, is that uh, this film also features Jessica Dublin playing Miss Zagross. She lived 1918 through 2012, another American actor who was working in Europe at the time. Her credits go all the way back to 1969, but then with a lot of early work in Euro cinema, she appeared in The Hook, Death Has Blue Eyes, The Devil's Men, of course. She's also in Island of Death, all in 76. But then she eventually moves back to the States and appears in the 1988 horror movie The Rejuvenator, and also several trauma films, including Troma's War in 88 and Toxic Avenger 2 and 3 in 89.
0: Haven't seen those. And please don't tell me we're going to start doing trauma films.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'd, off the top of my head, I don't know that I've ever watched one in its entirety. I remember seeing parts of them on TV uh, back in the 90s. But uh, yeah, so listener recommendations. Let us let's have them.
0: Uh, I mean, they're, you know, they embrace the the cheese, and I I feel like they're the kind of film that on paper would be something that we should enjoy, but I just don't like them.
4: <laughs> hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
1: All right, well, let's, let's talk about the music. What do you want to talk about first? Do you want to talk about Eno, or do you want to talk about the, the theme song that we get at the credits? Oh, man,
0: how about that rockin' theme song?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's titled The Devil's Men, with music by Carl Jenkins, who I think, unless I'm confused here, I believe is a Welsh composer, uh, born 1944. Um, lyrics by Carol Ann Barrett. And then the singer is Paul Williams, though not that Paul Williams, uh, a different Paul. This is the English blues and rock singer, Paul Williams, who is in uh, the band Zoot Money and Juicy Lucy. Juicy Lucy apparently also featured future White Snake guitarist Mick Moody.
0: Juicy Lucy's album titles sound like Spinal Tap albums. One of them is pretty much called Smell the Glove. Um, it's... <laughs> I don't really, I'm not familiar with this band much, but uh, this track was rocking. It felt like, uh, you know, it had a little bit of a... I was trying to think what reminded me of Black Sabbath about it. And I think maybe it was the drums. It had some kind of uh, more interesting kind of jazzy drum fills like Bill Ward does on some Black Sabbath songs. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it also had this driving kind of up-tempo beat and uh, some really good synth. And the singer on it sounds like the guy from Jethro Tull.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that comparison. It's kind of catchy. I kind of like it. Devil. Devil's man. <laughs> but of course, the, the the main attraction here is this terrific score by Brian Eno, born nineteen forty-eight. Uh Eno is, of course, the legendary British musician, composer, record producer, and visual artist. Uh I God, it's so I am tempted to say bet perhaps best known for his ambient work, but I mean, it's it's really too limiting to say that because his he's I mean, his work encompasses pop, rock, funk, electronica, uh, all sorts of stuff.
0: I was just trying to remember when I first became aware of who Brian Eno was, and I think I discovered him through his collaborations with David Bowie. Uh, Mm. so I think like when I was in high school, I first heard, uh, some of those three Berlin albums, uh, I heard like low and I was like, Oh wow, what is all this really spooky haunting synthesizer? And, um, and I found out Brian Eno had been a collaborator on these albums and was partially responsible for the, the sound and direction of them. Uh, but yeah, God, where do you start with Eno? That that's my personal story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, He played synth and Roxy music from 70 through 73. He's still active today, still producing, still writing, uh, you know, still building up that legacy. Um, well now I guess it's in a way it's easier to just sort of like hone in on his work with film over the years. Um, because when it comes to film, his, his tracks and tracks that he's produced have been featured on various soundtracks. Um, his track, An Ending Ascent, from the 1983 album Apollo Atmospheres and Soundtracks, has popped up in more films and TV shows than I can list. Absolutely amazing ambient track. Um, He's also had composed isolated tracks for films over the years, including the prophecy theme from David Lynch's Dune in '84, and uh, From the Beginning from Dario Argento's opera from '87. Mm. He's also composed uh, a number of tracks for non-existent films, and I'm 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 not deep enough on the background of these tracks to know which ones were like uh, were in fact tracks he composed for films that don't exist that are kind of like in the spirit of. Of score composition. And I think some of them were also like originally intended for film product projects and it, they didn't come together. But you'll find these on 1978's Music for Films and 1983's Music for Films Volume 2. Uh, but as far as complete Eno scores for films, where like he's doing the, the, the sole score work, uh, he did some scores for Derek Jarman, Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones in 2009, and also the 2005 film The Jacket. His score for The Devil's Men, a.k.a. Land of the Minotaur, uh, was, I believe, his first full score and uh, for film and his only his second composition for film following a short 1970 film titled Berlin Horse. In terms of his discography, uh, this comes out in 76, so it's following his work with Robert Fripp on 75's Evening Star. This is a, an album that um, J.J. Uh, was, was talking to me about and recommended that I listen to, and it in, indeed is awesome. Um, This also comes out after his uh, solo album 74's Here Come the Warm Jets, 74's Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, 75's Another Green World, and 1975's Discreet Music. The weird thing about this score, though, is despite the fact that it's Eno, I don't think it has ever been released, Uh, and none of the tracks are seemingly featured on his release film music 1976 through 2020, so I'm not sure if it's a rights thing or... If it's a situation where Eno is not, you know, doesn't look back on this music favorably. But I mean, to my ear, I think it sounds wonderful. And it it seems like the sort of film score that film fans would jump at and also Eno completists would jump at.
0: I agree. And, you know, I was thinking about this. I I can't say for sure because I knew about Eno's involvement before I started watching the movie, but I feel like the music here is so distinctively Eno that I might have identified it even if I hadn't known. Uh, Like Mm -hmm. the first track we hear in the movie is actually very simple. It only has a few elements. There's kind of a lower droning pad, like a robot moaning softly, and then there is... uh, Uh, There's what sounds kind of like a tape loop effect introducing little rhythmic hiccups and interruptions in the drone. Mm -hmm. And then there's a soft higher part that's uh, basically just stepping back and forth between two notes. So it's a pretty simple track, but uh, I think it's just unusual for a movie of this kind. And its mood imbues what you're seeing on the screen with so much more interest and an emotional paradox than would be there otherwise. Like, it is at the same time calming and unnerving. It kind of feels like it's safe to settle down and go to sleep, but also it suggests a question, like, is
1: there danger? Yeah, I mean, really, in the opening scene, there's about to be a satanic sacrifice. But the music does kind of imbue you with that feeling of like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling kind of chill about this. And then you kind of reflect on that and compare that feeling to what's actually happening on the screen. A dreamlike quality sets in.
0: So there's not a ton of it, but I think it's a very, very good score.
1: Yeah, so, it, you know, I, I, I would like to hear it in isolation. But, um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe Brian Eno has, has different thoughts on the matter. And, you know, you can't argue with Eno. All
0: right, we're going to talk about the plot a bit?
1: Yeah, let's get into the plot.
0: As I've mentioned before, I love a film that begins by showing you its papers. The disc release here debuts with a certificate showing that "The Devil's Men" has been reviewed by the British Board of Film Censors and has been rated X. <laughs> and I was thinking, really? Why? It doesn't seem that off the charts to me.
1: Yeah, like like I say, this film does not really have any exploitive elements to it. I mean, there's a little bit of um, a full nudity, but it's even so, it's, it's very tame compared to other like naked films of the 70s
0: yeah I don't know, so the rated x um but who are we to question right uh x so saith the right honorable the lord harleck k c m g president of the British Board of Film censors, and so I briefly got interested. I was like, wait a minute, well, his name's on this movie, who is the right honorable the lord harleck k c m g If my googling has not led me astray, this is William David Ormsby Gore, the fifth Baron Harleck. Uh, who lived 1918 to 1985, who was a member of the U.K. House of Lords and a diplomat, including he was uh, ambassador to the United States during the Kennedy administration, and he was an associate of the Kennedy family. Apparently, he proposed marriage to Jackie Kennedy in 1968, but she turned him down, and somehow that led to this. He, years later, was overseeing the review and classification of fine films like this one.
1: Mm, so he's like, Oh what's this one here? Minotaur's rated x no, no no minotaur's on my watch. I don't know if he actually watched
0: the films. he may have just been president of the organization. I like to think he watched every film personally. <laughs> Anyway, the movie proper opens with a deep blue night sky, a full moon and dark tree branches looming in the foreground. And there is ambient music. There are owls hooting and insects chirping in the dark. And then we see figures walking through the night around a Greek city on a hill Uh, or maybe not a city, more like a Greek village on a hill. There are men in multicolored robes and hoods like inquisitors marching between the houses and climbing up the rocks to a secret cavern.
1: Yeah, like like we said earlier, these various shots of uh, like the Greek countryside and Greek cities and so forth, Greek ruins—they they look good. I mean, it, it it's it's attractive looking. I mean, e- even the 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 some of the footage I looked at from uh, Island of Death, like it, it, nothing else you can say. Like oh, this looks looks like a, a cool place to visit. Agreed. I like the rocky crags, mm-hmm. and here's where we get
0: that Eno track I was describing a, a minute ago. Uh, But your classic cult sacrifice scene starts to unfold. There is an ancient stone temple with columns and archways and menacing statues of bullheads and double-bladed axes. And then somebody cranks a wheel and a giant statue of a minotaur emerges from beneath the floor. And this isn't just any minotaur statue. This one has full blowtorch nose, jets of flame blasting out of each of his
1: nostrils. That's right. Uh, it's a, a magical, technological marvel. Uh, I think it also has genitalia, which I, I think was also pointed out on the, the IMDb uh, parental notes for this film.
0: That's what got it an X rating, the full frontal mm. minotaur statue Newton. Yeah, a
1: min- minotaur penis, mm, rated X. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, one thing about the minotaur statue on its nose, uh, Rachel and I were watching this and she pointed out that she could see the texture of the paper mache uh on the on the nose they're like that's, you can see sort of yeah. strips of of cloth and paper
1: that's a good note i was noticing the texture but i didn't like instantly like identify what it was but i was thinking about the fact that i guess most of the people that originally saw this film would not have seen that that uh the, that, that texture you know there's so much that's that's lost uh in uh, in the uh you know the prior projection of these films
0: I guess I imagine this primarily playing on television, but I don't know. Maybe not.
1: Hmm.
0: Not with that X rating. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, so acolytes in red and green satin robes. They light fires in a semicircular trench on the floor. It's uh, surrounding not an altar, but three uh, stone reclining chairs. Okay. Mm, all right. Uh, some cultists bring in a man and a woman who are dressed not like the rest of the cult. They're wearing just 70s street clothes. And uh looks like we got some victims. So they're placed on the stone recliners. Peter Cushing appears, uh, and he is the head cult member. He stands in the middle of the room in a red robe with a big gold minotaur chain around his neck. And he says, We cover our faces in sight of our lord and then everybody in the cult repeats his words, and they all pull masks down over their faces, and the Minotaur statue is just snorting so much
1: fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, Minotaur statue looks good. Um, strong atmospheric opening, I feel like. I love the set. Um, I like the multicolored robes that seemingly hint at different ranks in the cult. So this is not just a black robes-in-the-darkness kind of a cult. You know, they put a little color into it. Um, I, I Looking back at these sequences, though they are revealing that uh, all the villagers are members of the cult. I don't think I necessarily got that the first way through, but there's not like, the, it kind of takes the punch out of the, any revelation that, oh, the, the, all the villagers are in the cult. I'm like, no, you know that from the get-go.
0: Yeah, they're all pretty much there. And then, you know what? Not just the adults, the kids too, because there is a young girl in a cult robe. She comes up to the two people in street clothes on the stone recliners, and she stabs them in the heart with a knife. Uh, and I think I saw a comment somewhere online asking, "Is that the director's daughter in that role?" And I have no idea, but I I want to believe that.
1: Well, either way, she's super
0: creepy. I, I I love it. So the human sacrifice is done. The people are dead. I guess
1: that was for the Minotaur. Did he like it? <laughs> there's no way to know. It doesn't. Again, there's nothing you can even compare to in the like the classic, more or less canonical Minotaur myth, like what does this do for um relations between um, you know the, the 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 between ancient crete and the, the rest of the of of, of the of the ancient world like there's none of that like nobody's being thrown into a labyrinth we have nothing to go on here
0: oh but there's a hilarious choice here
1: oh yes the opening titles uh the letters for the opening title blast out of the freeze frame minotaur's nostrils Just an absolutely excellent choice.
0: Right. So it snorts out the—I or don't know if snort's the right word. That implies the air is going in. It, like, uh, sneezes out the letters that form the (laughs) Devil's Men, and then freeze frame on the fire. It's like, duh, (laughs) and— (laughs) Uh, and then uh, there were some legitimate chortles at that moment on our couch but uh, because it sounds like the kind of idea like a seven year old would have you know and then the words come out of the monster's nose holes yeah Um, so that's good and you might think this is the part since there's a freeze frame, that you, you know, cut to the up tempo rock theme, but no, not at all. Instead we transition to a different ambient track, another big spooky mood. I guess it's Eno again. And this one is actually very spare with a lot of space in it. And the main motif is made of dissonant swelling synth chords that sounded to me like a choir of ancient mummies sighing on the other side of a wall.
1: Yeah, it, it immediately pulls you back in and you're like, "Oh, no." He knows being real serious here. So, I'm going to I'm going to be serious too.
2: Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh. <laughs> Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.
4: Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place. Like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Phillips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.
3: Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony Delasandra.
1: Billie's vocals. It was automatic art. You
2: know, I had to like
0: But okay, on to more action. Now we're in the daytime, children running through the streets, kicking a soccer ball.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I see these kids come running through the streets, though, in a dusty European town, and I immediately assume they're going to start pelting the local hunchback with rocks or cabbages or something. <laughs> that just that probably says more about my viewing habits than anything.
0: Yep. Uh, so there's a local police inspector. He's receiving a phone call. It's from a man named Father Roche, and that's Donald Pleasance, uh, again, playing an Irish priest living in Greece. Father Roach is like, uh, hey, how come so many people keep disappearing in your village? Uh, He mailed this cop a letter and a photo of two students who had been there and went missing recently. And what do you know? It's the two people from those stone recliners that we saw being sacrificed to a Minotaur. But he doesn't know that. So the police inspector says to him, you can't expect me to keep track of every person who goes missing in my jurisdiction. (laughs) And, okay, and Father Roche uh, suggests that they may have been victims of murder, and the police inspector gets real mad and says, why don't you stick to your job and I'll stick to mine? And I disagree. I think they should trade jobs.
1: I want to point out, and this is something I didn't get at first, but the police inspector is clearly one of the cultists. Like, yes. he, this actor was clearly one of the cultists pulling a hood over his his face for the for the sacrifice. So there's no... There's, there's no, uh, you know, uh, uh, s- suspicion or mystery here. Like he's clearly in with the cult. Everybody's in the cult. Everybody.
0: So we see Father Roche in his humble office, and he's pondering a gold trinket on his desk, which is a little bull head. Hmm. And then we see him going about his business. So he walks on the hillside and he talks to the locals. We see him kneeling alone in a tiny rustic chapel and praying. And then we see him writing a letter. By the way, there are a lot of letters, handwritten letters in this movie. Mm -hmm. He's he's writing it to Milo Kea in New York. And uh, so then and then we fade to New York, just like come up on the New York skyline.
1: Yeah, so far this movie set itself up, again, kind of like a full-car movie, but no, it's more of a globetrotter, apparently.
0: I guess so. When we first meet Milo, he is lying naked on a bed with pink sheets and pillows, smoking a cigarette. His chest hair is catching a shaft of sunlight. Uh, Milo, he creates the impression of a kind of shaggy cad. He's got Mm -hmm. puffy gray hair, though he's a young guy. He's one of those young guys with gray hair, dark eyebrows, and a very sarcastic almost mean kind of edge he's hanging out with his lady friend in this bedroom that's just crammed with candles and liquor bottles and stuff but again this is the room where
1: there's church organ music playing yeah and when we check in with him again in new york it seems to be the same room the same s- setting still naked so it implies that I, whatever his job is supposed to be the only thing he does in new york is sex
0: <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So he he's hanging out here. He gets the letter from Father Roche like his uh his lady friend is like, oh, there's mail for you. And so he opens it up and he's reading it. She sees him reading the letter and is jealous uh, when she sees him reading. She's like, who is she? And she takes the letter, and then she reads it, and she's like, oh, it's just that unwell Irish priest that you are constantly exchanging letters with. And Milo is like, okay, maybe he's gone a little too far with some of his Minotaur theories, but lay off him. Uh, This is a direct quote. He's the best friend I ever had.
1: Oh, no no additional detail on that, really, but he seems sincere. How do they know each other? (laughs) I don't know.
0: Well, she says these things he keeps writing you about, students disappearing, being swallowed up by some ancient magic or something. It's crazy. It's medieval. And Milo says, yeah, I don't really believe him. But, you know, uh, he's a good guy, Uh, even though and even though Father Roche is a good guy and he's asking Milo to come out to Greece to help him investigate the missing students, he will not do it. He's going to stay here in New York and mostly just stay in bed and, in fact, never even put his clothes on or leave the house.
1: Right, Yeah, very little to suggest he wears clothes in uh, America at all.
0: I think he's supposed to be a private detective.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess that makes as much sense as anything. Sure.
0: <laughs> so there's more globe trotting. Uh, a group of three archaeology students show up
1: at Father Roche's house to stay there <laughs> while they're doing some kind of field work. Oh, this uh, is where they drive up in the Australia van, right? The con- well, super confusing van that says Australia on the front. And at this point in the film, I was like, are we in Australia? <laughs> like, I don't know. We were just in New York. Maybe this is truly an international picture going on here. But I think the idea is that this is like the hippie fun bus that has perhaps driven to Australia. I don't know. I think, I
0: think it has the names of other countries on different parts of the van as well. Mm-hmm. I think it just says Australia on the front. But okay, we got the three archaeology students here. We got Tom. Uh, well, actually, no, I think maybe I'm getting the names mixed up. I was going to say Tom is the one with the dark hair and the beard who looks like a member of Stillwater. But if you're correct, you're saying that was actually Ian?
1: Yeah, Ian is played by Nikos Verlikas, uh, who... Is an actor and I think a director as well. Like he, he's still I think he's still around and had a, a pretty big career. But yeah, just a, a very handsome like Greek Jesus or Hercules type of a, a figure here.
0: Okay, that you're saying that's Ian. So that would make Tom the one who looks like football Brad Dorif. Yes. Okay. And then you've got Beth, who has long hair, big radiant smile, very short shorts. We were joking. uh, Rachel and I were noticing that, like, there's a scene where she's standing next to one of these guys who's wearing such huge jeans that they're basically jinkos, And there's, like, enough material in his pants to make a whole second pair of pants for her. Yeah. Uh, but so anyway, Father Roche takes them inside. He's going to feed him some food. And here, oh boy, we get a table setting scan. We love to examine movie set food more closely <laughs> than it was meant to withstand. Uh, so Father Roche cooks his three guests a big skillet of food of some kind. And it looked to me like the skillet had whole, unchopped, basically raw tomatoes in it. And then some kind of steaming white substance. And at one point... Uh, Ian gets served out of the pan and it looked like Donald Pleasance reaches in with the spoon and like serves some food. But what comes out is just one huge floppy lasagna sheet onto his plate and not much else.
1: Well, you know, it's served with love, though, so you don't you don't question it. But it could it just as easily have been a meal served up by a, like a, a harsh witch in another movie. been <laughs> just as fitting.
3: Yeah,
0: this is Baba Yaga. That's- Eat it. <laughs> So the main point of their meeting here is that uh, Father Roche tries to talk them out of going to the village where they're headed. They want to go do archaeology. But he's like, no, students keep disappearing there. Uh, And uh, so he thinks he's talked them out of it. Everybody goes to bed. And then the students, of course, they sneak out and they go to the village anyway. They go to the village of death and camp there in tents. They know no fear.
1: Yeah. yeah, We know how this is going to turn out for them, though. There's no question. And then meanwhile, we see Father
0: Roche almost, it's like he's playing with minis or something. He's got a a parchment map and all these shapes and lines on it, and he's arranging the minotaur trinkets on it.
1: Hmm, yeah, yeah, I guess they are kind of like minis. This would have really been more Peter Cushing's thing, who was uh, famously um, a a miniature soldier enthusiast and, and painted them and so forth. A man after my own heart. So while they're camping... Either Tom or Ian, whichever
0: one it is, writes a letter to somebody named Lori, another blonde woman, telling her this. This is going to be the third uh, similar looking blonde woman of the movie, telling her about his quest for knowledge of the past and asking her to come join, join them in Greece. And the next morning he gives the letter to Beth, asking her to mail it when she goes into town to buy groceries.
1: You know, in this film, we will later find out that the only thing that really works against the cultists. Is God stuff, so yes. it is kind of weird in retrospect that he's reaching out to all of these archaeologists and and non-church people when really he should have just brought in one or two other priests and they could have knocked this cult out in an afternoon.
0: But he doesn't even know it's a, it's a cult yet. He he doesn't know. He's just looking to to find the secrets of ancient Greece. Oh well, okay. Oh wait, are you talking about father? Are you talking about Father Roche bringing people in? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I was confused. I thought you were talking about. Th- either ian or tom the guy writing no dead. no no
1: they're basically i mean they're just they're just pawns in this whole scheme but right right, uh, right. but yeah i think father Roche should have brought in like one or two other priests and he he could have handled everything in just like an hour or two
0: i apologize i was confused yes exactly right he should have known better he even says it later when uh when milo so he's the guy who summons milo milo just wants to shoot a gun at everything and he's like you fool you fool that, that will not work <laughs>
1: Cultists are bulletproof.
0: But Beth goes into town to buy groceries. Um, oh, and then, by the way, while they're, the three of them are hanging out, there's a creepy guy with binoculars up on the cliffs above watching them, and uh, we get the Brian Eno mummy size going, and so we know something is really wrong here. And the guy watching them, he's some sort of chauffeur. He's in a uniform driving a fancy black car.
1: Mm, yes, and this we'll find out is Peter Cushing's driver.
0: So while Beth goes into town, Tom and Ian explore the ruins of an ancient temple. And while wandering around among the weathered stones and the columns, they find a secret doorway covered with the double axe symbol. And then they open it up. A uh, passageway leads down into a cave full of stalactites and stalagmites, interesting rock formations. It actually is a beautiful cave. And uh so they're wandering around the caverns and they find a couple of dead bodies wrapped in a red cloth. And what do you know? It's the two people from Father Roche's photograph, and then we get a Minotaur jump scare. There's a Minotaur statue just right there at him, fire nose blasting, and it says, Those who enter the forbidden chamber of the minotaur must die. Camera zooms in on Tominian's faces. They appear to be taking this news rather stoically. they just kind of like, oh, okay, and then it fades out.
1: Yeah, kind of perplexed.
0: I mean, I guess that would be just confusing. Yeah, in this bright, bright cave, with
1: just so brightly lit. It is quite,
0: you're right, I didn't even think about that,
1: yeah. But it's a beautiful cave, so it's like you want to show everything. It's kind of like the reverse. If your your cave set is barely cutting it, You're going to turn those lights way down. But when it's this beautiful uh, uh, actual cave environment, yeah, light it up.
0: So we see Beth shopping in town. Uh, She gets a kind of icy reception from this lady she meets. There's like a lady with red hair pushing a baby carriage. And the lady buys some meat and then puts it in the carriage with the baby. And Beth is like, cute baby. And the woman just gives her dagger eyes. And then outside the market, Beth meets Peter Cushing. And he mm. is a very polite, courteous, genteel man. He's wearing a wool jacket and, and a nice suit. And uh, uh, Beth drops a bag of what looks like cheese puffs or something in the street. And he picks it up for her and then has his chauffeur
1: help her with her groceries. Doesn't she call it like, oh, my product or something like that? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I think she says my package. My package. Yes. My <laughs> package.
0: But it it's a bag of cheese balls.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess if you're in the. In, in, in the presence of peter cushing you know you you may scramble your words and, and afterwards she's like oh why did i call my cheese puffs my package oh my god I'm so embarrassed
0: well she explains that she's an archaeology student she's here to do archaeology uh and he says uh, well i am baron corifax uh, this castle is my castle and you're on my land and it's like oops oh i guess we didn't clear that with him ahead of time but he says don't worry if you're genuinely interested this is one of the oldest pagan sites in the country her answer to this is are you a real baron (laughs) (laughs) he says it's an ancient title in his own land which is carpathia but now he lives here and i got so tripped up here we had to pause it and try to figure out is he saying hereditary titles and lands are transferable from Carpathia to Greece? Like can you trade in your Carpathian barony for a Greek castle?
1: Well, European royal families, it's complicated, right? Yes. <laughs> uh
0: yes, you see it is because I am my own cousin. <laughs> Well, anyway, so he's friendly, he offers to help her and her friends, and then she drives away, she she, oh, she asks for her package, and he gives her the cheese doodles, and uh, then she drives away, and then the mummy starts sighing in the Eno score, and he gives a devilish look, so we know, oh, he's up to no good. And when she gets back to her campsite, Tom and Ian are nowhere to be found, and the tents are gone. So she goes mm. to look for them at the temple ruins. Uh, we see her later that night walking outside the baron's estate, and then dudes in cult robes just kind of wander up to her, and she screams.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, she's generally worried there, because like Tom and Ian don't seem to know how food works. And they're out there alone without cheese doodles, uh, and it's just gone from, from uh, for bad to worse here.
0: They do genuinely seem like they're like, oh, no, uh, we need Beth to cook for us, and otherwise we will starve. Yeah. So we transition to a plane landing, uh, and let's get a good look at that plane. Oh, it's it's on the runway now. Okay, now it's turning around. Did you see the uh, engines? Here are the jet engines.
1: Yeah, get some good uh, trotting stock footage. And we
0: meet another blonde lady. This is Laurie, who either Tom or Ian wrote the letter to. And she goes to stay at Father Roche's house. She's like, "Hey, what happened to my boyfriend? Uh, why didn't he meet me at the airport?" And uh, Father Roche is like, "I have had enough of students disappearing. Fi- we've got to, <laughs> you know, we've got to put a stop to this." So he finally commits to doing the charges of a long-distance call to, to call Milo at his house <laughs> on the phone and demand he come to Greece to investigate. And then, like the very next moment, Milo's there in Greece.
1: Yeah, it's like, Milo, I need you to put pants on. I need you to find your passport. And he does. Milo
0: doesn't own pants, so I'm sure he has to send out for some. (laughs) So then we get the three of them driving in a car on a country road, and Milo is driving fast and recklessly. And Donald Pleasance is like, I'd have taken the bus if I'd known you were such a speed demon. And uh, this is a dynamic. I said earlier that this is a, movie where the same conversations just happen over and over again Mm -hmm. and this is definitely one of those things there's like there are like four different scenes where they are driving a car and he's driving too fast and they talk about how he's driving too fast
1: yeah yeah because we come we come back to this later where where he's like uh yeah they're just talking about the same thing again more driving more moving from point a to point b
0: Another conversation that repeats many times is Milo saying, I'm just a simple private detective. I deal in facts, not demons and devils. And of course, Father Roche is like, well, you know, you'll you'll learn soon enough. Uh, So they're driving around. I guess they're trying to start their investigation and they stumble across a funeral where there is a sudden weird psychic mind meld between Laurie and the local girl. Wait a minute. Was that the girl wielding the knife in the cave earlier?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another nice scene of of this girl staring blank expression at the camera. Uh, I think Eno music kicking in, making it nice and creepy and dreamlike. I like it.
0: So they stay at the local inn, and then later this night, there is a scene that's really funny where Laurie is, like, in the bath, and then the cult members, I guess, are trying to come get her. They're like, one's coming in the door, and another one's coming in the window, and she sees them. And then when they see that she sees them, they, like, run away, so they, like, retract their heads through the doors and the windows and, like, slam them shut. And we see this happen about 17 times. (laughs) So Lori's like, Hey, there were guys in weird hoods trying to get me in the bath and Milo doesn't believe her. He's like, Oh yeah, you were just dreaming or something. He deals in facts. That's right. Facts only. But yeah, nothing nothing she says is even supernatural or anything. She's just like guys attacked me while I was in the bathroom is like that is a, a perfectly factual seeming statement. Yeah. So the next day they explore the temple ruins, they find the passageway, they go down into the caverns, they find the sacrifice room. Uh, there is a chandelier trap where Milo saves Donald Pleasance and Lori from a falling chandelier. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, uh, I think Milo goes up to like the rope that has frayed and says, oh, is this an act of God? And then Donald Pleasant says, there's someone here. I can feel him all around mm-hmm. me.
1: Yeah, this this is a great set. And this the Chandelier Trap is one of the few action sequences in the whole picture. Um, so, of course, it's in that trailer. <laughs> but uh, but I do love the set.
0: Let's see. So skipping over a few things here. Uh, Roche and Milo. Oh, there's one point where they go and speak to the Baron at his house. He, like, sends a car for them. And not a lot comes out of this scene. He, mm-hmm. The Baron is—we learn that he's an exile from his home country. And they kind of play— uh, trade some pleasantries and then we see the lady with the baby from the grocery store and she says she is staying with Baron Corafax. and we see the baby playing with this gold artifact and Donald Pleasant says it's an odd toy and Cushing says it is old but not odd it is the labirus, and Donald Pleasant says I know it is the ancient symbol of the Minoan priesthood and then later he explains to Milo when they're alone after they've left the house he says I didn't want to say too much but it's also a symbol of human sacrifice, <laughs> and then Milo is like, Shut up, it was just a toy. I only want facts. <laughs> By the way, remember that Milo said Donald Pleasance is the best friend he's ever had.
1: You know, and again, Milo's supposed to be a detective, but the tech detective work in this film is is pretty shoddy. It, we don't feel I don't really never felt like we really have a detective story. Um. It's uh, the investigation portion of the film is just just feels kind of sloppy and with lacking in direction.
0: So they come back to the inn that night. Uh, oh, and by the way, there's a recurring theme with like this woman from the village who wants to talk to them, but every time she wants to talk to them, one of the like the police inspector will pop up from behind a bush and kind of grunt at her menacingly, and then she will like <laughs> scared and run away. Uh, yep. So that happens a few times, and then uh, they find her dead at the inn.
1: Yeah, I think this is Jessica Dublin, by the way. Okay.
0: Mrs. Zagros? Yeah. All right. Uh, And then also this night we see Laurie getting chased through the woods by people in cult robes, like, they're chasing her and then uh milo goes and he hears her screaming so he goes and finds her in the woods and she's like there were men chasing me and milo's like no nah, nonsense probably just a cow got
1: lo- got loose in the woods <laughs> Jeez, yeah the the, the film is there again it doesn't get into like really big sexism but there's just like a pervasive film of sexism <laughs> over over the, the entire thing, you know, like, again, doesn't really get into exploitation territory. But it's like the, nobody listens to the female characters at all.
0: All of the young men, at, at least, do not mm-hmm. listen to any of the women. Yeah. Yes. I guess Donald Pleasance is sort of he, he's listening.
1: He's listening to everybody. He's hip. He's, he's hip with the young folk. He, That's right. He's, he's hearing them out. <laughs>
0: um so when the three of them get reunited they let's see they learn oh the whole village is deserted because roche had been going out trying to find somebody to help them uh i guess i think maybe because they heard laurie screaming but he can't find anybody uh so all deserted Uh, there's no power the houses are dark and empty So they go up to their rooms at the inn with candles. uh, But then Milo goes back down to the bar because he says he's going to have a drink, I guess, in the dark. And Laurie is scared. She says there were there were people in the woods like some human fiend. And here Donald Pleasance is listening to her. He's like, I know. And this is where he gives his speech about the devil. The force acting here is older than mankind. The power without a face. It may have been known as Mephistopheles or Beelzebub or whatever else, but it is all the same. It is the devil.
1: Yeah. Again, it's, it's just, it, yeah, devils, minotaurs, it, yeah, all the same thing. Doesn't matter. I'm opposed to it. Let's go stop it.
0: So he goes back downstairs. So there's a lot of just kind of going back, up and downstairs here. <laughs> uh, he goes back down to Milo, and this is where they have the exchange about where the devil did the whole village get to. And he's like, "You you said it yourself, the devil." Mm. Um. Oh, but then it finally reveals where the three archaeology students from 30 minutes ago were. Uh, they are in a cave, still alive, being held prisoner by Peter Cushing. And he stands in front of them without saying anything. But the Minotaur talks to them. The statue says, only one thing can save you now. Or I guess it does a creepy voice. Only one thing can save you now. Father Roche must die. He has entered my forbidden chamber. And... And she has a, a, I think he's sort of talking mostly to Beth. And Beth has a vision of herself stabbing Donald Pleasance with a knife. And she's like, oh, no, you know, it, it wants me to kill Father Roche. And uh, she says she won't do it. But Cushing and his chauffeur are both standing there and they laugh like, ha ha, ha 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 ha. And they just wander <laughs> away.
1: Yeah, it's like a creepy sequence, but nothing's really done with it. Like nothing really evolves out of this moment.
0: There are actually a lot of scenes in this movie where nothing changes, plot-wise. Yeah. Nothing nothing new has happened.
1: Mm-hmm. But you keep watching because you yeah. know there's going to be a showdown. You know that there's going to be some sort of payoff at the end.
0: Right. So we start getting there. So uh, Roche and Milo... Uh, they see more cult figures moving around, or I guess maybe Milo sees them for the first time, and then they chase after them. They chase the cult members, then the cult members chase them, and there's <laughs> a lot of chasing around. They get lo- uh, The two non-cult members get locked into some kind of walled garden, and mm-hmm. we see a ceremony beginning where Cushing is uh, saying, the old customs remain and the ancient gods live on, which isn't much of a, 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 a catechism, I don't know. Uh, But everybody repeats this. They're, they're saying all the same things he's saying. Uh, And then we see the archaeology students, they're tied to poles like prisoners of the Ewoks and brought in (laughs) put on the recliners. And Ian and Beth get deposited on stone recliners and the girl stabs them in the heart. Or maybe it's Tom and Beth, whichever, Ian or Tom. Uh, So they're dead. And later, Donald Pleasance and Milo just walk up on these recliners and find them there. I don't know how Mm -hmm. they got to where this was. Uh, But so they're driving around, and at some point, they hit a cultist with their car, and then they uncover his face. And I think it's the police inspector. Is that who you thought it was? I
1: think it it is, yes.
0: And he smiles. He's like, ha-ha, and he gets up, and he runs away. And Roche, uh, Roche says, "Yes, he was at the edge of death, but it takes more than the force of an automobile to destroy them." And I was thinking, where did he get this info? He's like he's like Van Helsing, but instead of knowledge on vampires, he has knowledge on Minotaur cult members.
1: Yeah, and they're sort of bland powers, bland but impressive. Like, yes, you can survive a gunshot, but it feels like the kind of thing that would have been impressive in like a um, an, an action-adventure serial from the 30s, you know? Uh, that's like the level of, of threat and magic we're dealing with with these cult members.
2: Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. zigazoo a social network for kids download the zigazoo app today
4: from football playoffs to basketball madness
0: So the next day uh, in the village, everybody is going about their business. But now Roche and Milo are walking amongst these people in the streets, and they realize all of these people are members of the Minotaur cult by night.
1: <laughs> Finally putting one and two together here. Yeah. Oh, wow. How who would have
0: thought? Uh, also, they realize, whoops, Lori has been cult napped in the night. So now she is she's been taken by them uh, and they know she's probably going to be sacrificed the next night. So uh, the uh, so they're they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Milo is like, wow, finally, finally, he recognizes something is up when Laurie is gone. So he starts uh, the police inspector comes in the door of their uh, room at the inn, I guess, and is like, "Uh, hey, what's up? And Milo just starts beating him up and punching him in the face, throwing him down the stairs until he is stopped by Peter Cushing, who is like, hey, why are you beating up a police inspector? And then Cushing pulls a shotgun on him. So it's Baron with a shotgun here. And what's the deal with it? He says he's going to give them one minute to do something, maybe to get out of the inn or something. And then he counts down a few seconds, but then shoots the clock. It's a really kind of a squib of a scene.
1: Yeah, Uh, So many squibs uh, in this movie where, yeah, it doesn't, there's not really any kind of payoff. It's unclear exactly like, why we were here. Um, but you keep watching because you know you're going to get to that big showdown. There's going to be a showdown. There's got to be a showdown.
0: Oh, we're basically there. So Roche and Milo drive away. Milo pulls a gun out of the glove box in the car, and Donald Pleasance is like, Haven't you learned anything? Do you really think you can stop this with bullets? There's only one force that can fight them. And so Donald Pleasance and Milo stop at a roadside chapel to get weapons. So they get a crucifix and holy water and all this for the final showdown.
1: I did like that we got to see the sourcing of the holy water. I feel like this is one thing the film does well. More often than not, you see the holy water in a, in a vampire movie or what have you. It's, you know, it's already been collected. It's just in a little bottle as if you get it that way and you store it that way. But I, I kind of like that we saw the collection of the holy water. It, it, in a way, it, it, it's one of the few moments in the film where they successfully build towards something else.
0: I agree. I like this scene also. Uh, Also, we see Peter Cushing go to the temple to speak to the Minotaur and the Minotaur unsurprisingly wants him to kill the priest. He's like, bring Hmm. me Father Roche. I don't know why he's so interested in Father Roche. I think it's because he entered his forbidden chamber and is still alive. But that's also true of Milo and of Laurie, who uh, I guess the cult has now in in custody.
1: You know, time was a Minotaur would take care of this problem itself. You know, that was kind of the classic uh, situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. But now he's got to get Peter Cushing to do his work for him. I don't know. So there's a final showdown. Milo and Roche go back to stop. You know, there's a ceremony going on. You can imagine exactly what it is. There are no real surprises at all at the end of this movie. There's a big ceremony and uh, they've got they've got Laurie there and then they've got whichever one of the archaeology students it was that's still alive. (laughs) Either Tom or Ian, those two are still alive and they're going to be sacrificed. You know, the girl with the knife is there. Ceremony's going on. Milo busts in into the ceremony with a gun, but the cultists basically don't care. They just sort of ignore him while he's like blam-blamming at them. Uh, and they just grab him, you know, because they're invulnerable to bullets, of course. Only a greater power can stop them. Uh, so they tie him up to the third recliner at the front of the temple, and I guess they're going to sacrifice him too. The Minotaur statue once again reiterates those who enter the forbidden chamber of the Minotaur must die. And then... Roche bust, uh, He comes in and he defeats them all. How does he do it? Does he, is there any, is there like a big twist? What, what is it he's going to do? He holds up a crucifix and he says some Latin. He's like mm-hmm. in nomine Patrice. And then the Minotaur and all of the cult members explode, like just shrapnel <laughs> everywhere.
1: The least little bit of religion down here, the least little bit of Christianity, uh, down in the, the, the Minotaur's lair just explodes everyone except for the cultist children. So anybody in, I think the, the children are all wearing what, white robes. Yeah. So if you have a, any other color of robe, you just completely explode. The um,
0: green, the purple, the red, they're all exploded.
1: Yeah. Just completely blasted. Um, you know, it's kind of like a low rent version of the, the devil's reign instead of having them like slowly, painstakingly melting for, uh, you know, a good 15 minutes or what have you. Uh, it's just a few quick explosions and they're done.
0: But I think this is kind of funny because the the creepy cult girl was the one who actually physically did all the murders. Like she put the knife in the people, but she's OK. An innocent. Uh, she's an innocent, Joe that's right so she and the other kids they wander out and uh, you know Milo's like how come they didn't explode and Father Roche (laughs) explains he says they are young their souls are incorruptible but the fight against evil goes on one day Milo I may need your help again (laughs) they are setting up a sequel and then it cuts straight to the rock track you know uh, let's get a sample of that JJ
1: So groovy, what kind of globe-trotting adventures are these two going to get into in the next film that they didn't make? Uh, maybe they'll go back to Roche's
0: home of Ireland, and there'll be a banshee, and we'll learn about how banshee is just the same thing as the devil.
1: Yeah, like I think that would be the template. Satanic cult that's worshipping the banshee. And then they do a film where they go to somewhere in the U.S., and it's like a satanic cult that's worshipping Bigfoot. Just whatever. Just Which quickly. is also
0: the devil, yeah.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, in all cases, it's obviously the devil. And then they go to one, it's like, it's a satanic cult, and they're worshiping, oh, Jesus, oh, this is just a church. Then they're like, okay, cancel this. This is just another church.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, I think this is definitely not one of the best films we have covered, but you know what? I I had a great time on today's episode.
1: Yeah, this is a fun one. Um, I, I also want to drive those explosions. When the cult members explode it's not gory. It's just kind of, they just kind of explode. It's like, they're like driftwood.
0: They're like pinatas. Uh,
1: Yeah. So yeah, this is a, this is a fun one. It's a hard, it's hard to recommend this one to folks, unless you are uh, you know, a completist on any of the talents involved here. Uh, I think if you're, if you're a big Brian Eno fan, it's worth checking out. Again, if you're a huge Donald Pleasance or Peter Cushing fan and you just must see everything, then give it a go. Um, I I don't know. It's,
0: I think this is a good, this is a good movie to put on while you're doing something else. Th- that's something yeah. I like to do sometimes. Where if I'm like hanging out with people, I put on a, a silly movie on low volume that's not too visually arresting. This is a good one.
1: Yeah, I th- I think in fact I have a neighbor who had this years and years ago. I think he was playing this in his backyard. Uh, so um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty good to to play in such a setting, and you know the Greek connection is pretty cool. I like getting to to check Greek cinema off to some degree on the uh, the, the Weird House Cinema International checklist. <laughs> this was so, the uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not we're not doing Island of Death, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but we always you know we invite uh, uh, recommendations from listeners. So if there is another example of weird Greek cinema that we should consider. Uh, write in and let us know.
0: Yes, of course.
1: All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close this one up. Uh, just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film here on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see a list of all the movies we've covered over the years, you can go to a couple of places. We have a profile on letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We're Weird House there. Uh, there's a list where you can see all the films we've covered over the years. And I also blog about these movies at submutedmusic.com. Come.
0: Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.